You are listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was the multi-talented Keith Rousseau. And Keith is, um, he's a lot of things. He's an actor, a model, a photographer. How I first knew him was as an artist when he showed me some of the work that he had done. And he happens to do the kind of work that I kind of have a weakness for, which is abstract pieces. And the materials that he used, the designs that he had, um, just happen to be things that I, you know, love. And so that was how I first knew him. I did not realize the uh, <laughs> many lines of effort that Keith has creatively. And, you know, as is often the case on this show, you know, I come in with one preconceived notion about somebody and then you end up finding out all these other facets. And with Keith, um, I think it's easy to label him the jack of all trades. And I, and as he and I talk about briefly on the show, I don't, see, I don't think that's a moniker he's running away from, but he also sees the advantage of being a jack of all trades, that it is um, better than a mass, than, than, uh, than someone who maybe focuses only on one line of effort. And with the trauma and the setbacks that he's experienced in his life, both from his, accident that happened in the military and accidents that have happened outside the military. Um, there's a practicality and a, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, just a realistic expectation of the work involved to make it in any artistic effort. Um, but to be firing on all cylinders, I think is an instructive case for a lot of people. And I'll say one thing that we talked about, and uh, obviously I'm recording this after our interview, so I've had the benefit of having thought about this for a little bit. And um, and Keith isn't here, so we can't talk about it the way we were on the episode, but I'll I'll say this kind of after the fact. Uh, During the episode, you know, Keith, um, you and I talk about success and how one defines success and Keith made the very um, to my mind inarguable point that success is not simply monetary which of course it isn't and I pointed out that famous well, I don't know if it's a famous story it's a story that Jack Lemon uh, told uh, years ago I remember hearing we talked about seeing a newspaper headline that said successful businessman kills self and which obviously begged the question what made the businessman so successful if he was just killing himself at the end of the day anyway. Um, so certainly money is not the only uh, return on investment for a life well lived. Um, but I don't, I felt like afterwards one of, one of my takeaways was I felt like I didn't close the loop on what success is fully. And I think what it is, is successful communication of what it is you are trying to put out there. 
Um, if you feel like your words are actually being captured, your emotions are actually being understood, your um, heart, your soul is accurately um, resonating with audiences, however big or small they are, then that's success. And what I'm kicking myself for is I didn't have a chance to ask Keith, or I had a chance, I missed my opportunity to ask Keith, does he consider himself successful? Um, does he feel that his uh, art is communicating what he wants it to? And um, I have a feeling I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate his answer, which is very unfair to him since he's not here to defend himself. But I think he would say that it, it probably is resonating and doing what it needs to do on many levels maybe the writing is is and and the the he's working on 12 books right now uh you know and obviously you know uh, i mean he, it's not a you know he's not sitting there you know with 12 typewriters lined up in front of him he's not going insane but you know even even just intermittently going back and forth between 12 books is exhausting and and um exhaustive so um I have a feeling he would say that's probably, you know, there's probably work to be done still there. Um, but it's, but it was very interesting to talk to somebody who is um, firing on so many pistons. And, um, and I, I took away a lot of inspiration and heart from it. Um, knowing how much Keith and, and I should men- say that we mentioned his wife, Ava Aston. Uh, several times, maybe even more than several times throughout the episode. She's a very talented singer here in the Hudson Valley. Um, does an awful lot of work for veterans causes. She's a, you know, a military daughter. And um, anyway, just a great singer. And she sang at the Savage Wonder Festival. Uh, anyway, so she's referenced throughout the episode. Um, and I think understanding the very natural hardships that any human being is going to face going through life, but doing that, but then contextualizing it by looking at how that affects their artistic output, their artistic um, ambitions, their career paths artistically, I think gives it a whole new context. It's something I have a, I have a big soft spot for. I mean, I think growing up in New York city, you know, I was surrounded by, um, artists who's who ran into life you know and um and life tried to derail their plans and they had to push back and fight and cling to um their artistic vision and what they were trying to get out there and i think there's an extreme amount of nobility in having something to say and working laboring to say it um, even and maybe especially when life tries to throw a lot at you and to see Keith doing it on so many different in so many different media is um, is impressive <laughs> so uh, yeah anyway it was a great time talking with him he's a great guy and I really enjoyed the conversation so I don't think I have any more level setting to do I think I've mentioned everything you guys need to know to fully appreciate this episode. So I'll leave it at that.
I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I am the Artistic Director at VetRep, and this is the Savage Wonder of Keith Rousseau. What's up, Keith? How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, dude, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking some time on a Saturday to sit and chat. Are you at home right now? I'm taking it. That is correct. I am home. Yes. Okay, got you. And you guys are you guys are you and Ava are out pretty much every weekend. It seems like doing something, right? Either she's yeah. got something or you've got something, and you guys are just hustling every weekend. It seems like that's what you got to do. You got to yeah. keep going. Yep. How did this start for you? How did this? How did you get on this treadmill? Because this isn't an easy life to do, especially when you're not in the city to begin with, right? In the sense of being creative. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I grew up basically in a creative home. Um, you know, so I always was involved in some form of creativity, whether it be writing or drawing or painting of some sort as a kid growing up through all my elementary and junior high and stuff like that. And my, those are my favorite classes. They were the things that I really you know, clung to. And my sister, actually, she went to school for um, painting and um, my grandfather was a painter and my mom dabbled in painting. So it was something I was always exposed to and it was something that I was always involved in. Um, and as a youth, I was very engaged in things like uh, the class drama kind of stuff, the mm. chorus. So it's something that it's just been a part of me. I was always part of like the class choir or something of that nature. And you know, it was a dream of mine as a kid, of course, to be like the front man to a rock band. And then I realized I really can't sing. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy it, but I'll leave that to my wife, you know, because she's really the singer. But, um, you know, I sing all the time in the car when nobody else is listening. Um, but that's about as far as that goes. She won't, she won't let you back her up or anything. She won't let you do supporting vocals. Well, funny, story, like funny story. We actually flew to Nashville. Um, there was a new reality show called Duets. And somehow she convinced me to be her duet. It was hysterical because we went to Nashville and it was freezing out. It was ap- we had lived in Nashville for a little bit and then we went to New York and that's where we are now. But she and I uh, flew to Nashville on a, um, you know, one of these cost Southwest Airlines flights, or whatever, and stayed in the hotel for the night and um, auditioned for this show. And she somehow convinced me to be her duet. And it was awful for me. <laughs> I mean, she was great. I think I caused her to not get picked, but you know, I was going to say, what was it like for the audience? What was it like for the judges? Did you see winces I, on the face or, or was it more just quiet dismissal well, when, or what you would, how'd you feel? Well, when you're doing it, it's uh, there's multiple rounds. Okay. And so you're standing in a line outside freezing and we were, you know, alternating going back and forth to the car to heat up. It was that bad. And uh, so we finally get inside and, you know, after several hours of waiting, they just bring you into a room with a couple of people and they just have you sing real quick. And if you're good, then you send to the next round and then you go to the next round. And then, so there's multiple levels before you even get in front of any sort of actual judge, judge, you know? Okay. Gotcha. So gotcha. I don't um, think we made it the first round. <laughs> and she learned her lesson after that. Yeah. yeah. You were not invited back. I gotcha. Well, yeah. I got, that makes sense. Uh, talk about a little bit about that. So when, when you started out as a kid in this creative environment, I mean, it, well, let me, let me preface this. Your website is hilarious because it's awesome. It's incredibly prolific, but I'm like, holy crap. You got, you got the art, you have your acting, you have the photography. 
you're doing an awful lot of stuff. So it begs the question, what's your first love? What's the thing that, that like, if you could throw every, all the rest of it away, you would. Um, if I were, if, if I were to be able to have my absolute dream job, um, it would probably be a, you know, national geographic photographer. Really? I remember as a kid growing up, my dad had, see the thing about it is that it incorporates multiple things. I love travel and I love exper- exploring and I love um, experiencing new things. And that's one of the things I love about art and creativity is because it's all an exploration. It's all a creative process, you know? So if you make a new painting, new drawing, it's something that you really may not know what it is going to be until you actually finish it. Same thing with a story. The story has to tell itself. And um, with a character you're acting in, again, you have to also allow the character to come alive in you. And you really are not 100% sure where it's going to go. And it's a, it's a discovery process. So, I mean, you know, truthfully, I mean, I would love to be nothing but more than like a Hollywood, you know, celebrity actor kind of thing and then have the power to do all the different things I want to do creatively. But if I were just have to cut off, you know, one in this position I'm at right now, I'd probably want to be able to just be like a uh, National Geographic, um, you know, photographer as a kid. That was my dream. I looked at the uh, magazines. So my dad, he was a, uh, you know, subscriber to the magazine. And I would sit there for hours just looking at the photos and looking at the articles and reading them and getting to, you know, get really enveloped in that. And that was what drew me to photography. And it also drew me a lot towards my writing. And so the writing really opened up a lot of avenues for me in the sense of creativity towards film and TV and learned, I actually taught myself how to write a screenplay. Got you. Got you. So then let me back up when you're a kid. And you're having that inspiration and you're already in a creative household. Um, how does that develop? How does that develop during high school? Do you, who are you in high school? Are you a jock? Cause you're a good looking guy, your height, weight proportional. I'd imagine you probably were into sports, but yeah, were, are I, we more into the art scene? What, where, how was that starting to develop in you? Well, there was a variety of different things that took place where, I did, even though it was a creativity in my home, there was more of an important role about having a job and an income. My dad's nuts in the background. He's rolling around. Sorry. You're good. But um, the uh, emphasis in my household was to have a job. I remember I had a conversation with my mom at one point where I told her when I went to the military, I found a school, Eastern New Mexico University, and I got accepted into their performing arts program. And I called my mom and I was like, hey, mom, guess what? I uh, got accepted into this performing arts program and I'm going to major in acting. So she says to me, Keith, how are you going to make any money? Yeah. I don't understand. How are you going to be? You, you should go and be a pharmacist and then get a job. And I'm like, you know, as a, a pharmacist, they make great money. And then when you're successful, then you can go in acting. I said, what? What are you talking about? Pharmacist? And no, like even there was no thought in my world that even something that I would remotely consider. And, um, you know, I, I think in large part, my parents, it, they had a mindset to focus on trying to develop a career and that anything art related was more of a pipe dream, you know, and it was just more of a hobby kind of thing and just not really something that we could ever achieve and succeed in life and do. And that was really you know, challenging for me to kind of get over. And so ironically, the funny thing about that story is that about a year later, I was really involved in my local church 
and I started getting involved in their youth ministry. And so I was very heavily involved in that. And um, I called my mom and I says, Hey mom, I'm thinking about being a youth minister. And she says, are you nuts? It's like, I thought you wanted to be an actor. You'll never make any money now. So I was like, Oh God. And so what yeah, am I going to yeah. do? Yeah. And um, you know, so it's, it's a challenge. And so I had to really break away from the, you know, stranglehold of this dynamic of having to have a traditional life. And so growing up through high school and whatnot, that was the original question. Um, it was funny because I remember specifically in high school, I used to sit at the girls table because they were all the pretty girls and um, I got to be friends with them. You know, they were like my buds in a way because I wanted to be around the girls. Right. And I actually had, the jocks and stuff coming to me saying, Hey, do you think I could sit at the table with you? <laughs> and so, I mean, there was days like, cause some of them lived in my neighborhood and around when I would, when I finally got to drive, I would uh -huh. pick them up with my car on the way to school and I'm driving with four or five girls in my car and they're, you know, all the hot girls. Right. And uh, you know, so that to me was, you know, how things were for me, but I was in sports. I did play basketball, which was my least favorite. Um, I was a uh, baseball player. I, pitched. I was center field, first base. I played football growing up. Um, you know, so it was a variety of sports. I was involved in as many different things as I could. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because I feel like, I feel like this is true for most people. I think most people are way more creative than they will ever manifest in their life because you have to make a living and yeah. you, there, there's other concerns and that's fine. Uh, you know, you have to prioritize, but you have to prioritize. I'm not somebody that thinks everybody needs to do art. Sometimes you know, your path might be different. But that's interesting because I think you're probably reflecting what many people feel and you're kind of living out what a lot of people just never, that path and most people see that they could have gone down, but just never took that chance and actually walked it. Do you yeah. ever feel that? Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating because there's sacrifices in life that we have to actually make in yeah. doing this. And it's challenging because one of the things that I had a conversation with my dad about is he would tell me all the different things that he dreamed about doing. There was an opportunity mm. to be coached by an Olympic skater for the Olympics. There was an opportunity to um, work as a general's aide in Washington, D.C. when he was in the military. There was an opportunity for him to try out for the Red Sox. So, I mean, there were so many wow. things that he said that he had opportunities for doing, but he never did them. Wow. And a large portion of that, I think, is out of fear. Right. And the challenge is for most people is to step out and take a chance and actually do it. And, you know, for me, I didn't want to be like my dad and have those kind of regrets and say, I never tried, you know, and he, he was approached by the founder of Ford models or LA models rather out of Los Angeles and asked if he could be one of the first models for LA models. Wow. And he declined. Right. So there's things that in life were presented opportunities and sometimes we have to jump at them. And, you know, I feel, though, even if I never make it as the level of success that I want, I can't say I didn't try. I can't say yeah. I didn't actually pursue my dreams and my passions and allow that to be who I am and allow that to develop in me. And so there's a saying many people, you know, are familiar with is there's a jack of all trades master of none but they don't know the whole saying and i just saw this and i think it's fantastic is jack of all trades master of none yet is still better than a master of one mm. and so for me i feel like i've 
I am given an opportunity. I'm a Christian and God gave me this opportunity to be on this earth to do and experience the majesty and the greatness of what this world has to offer and this life has to offer. So if I can be and do all these different things and experience all these different things, I feel like that's part of what it is for me to be here is to explore and learn and experience all the great things that God has to offer through this world and through this experience of life that I have. And it's important for me to connect with all these things and try them and see if I can, you know, make them grow, do something with them because you only have that one opportunity sometimes. And why, why refuse it? And why be able to give into something like having to have a job? I have a job, but that doesn't mean that I, my creativity has to stop. Right. Right. And you make the time for what you need to make time for. Right. What, but let's talk about that. Cause that seems like where the, the jack of all trades would run into practical real world problems. How do you divide your day? How do you decide what you're going to do in a given day? Is it based on just, is it as easy as, well, I got a job to do this. Somebody hired me or commissioned me to do that. And so I do that or on your own, are you, are you kind of formatting your day, your week, your month and going, Hey, today I've got to get on with the art. I, I it's been a while since I've gotten with it and I've, I've got to get something churned out. How do you divide yourself? You know, honestly, it's because I've been doing it so long. It, it's actually just part of who I am, you know, mm-hmm. multitasking and being able to, I don't really have any sort of schedule. I hardly ever wear a watch except for appearances sake. It completes an outfit. You know, I don't like to know what time it is. I like to just, obviously, of course, if I have to clock in for my job, I, that kind of thing, but, and I'm looking at the end of the day saying, okay, end of the day, bye-bye. And now my, I change hats, you know? Mm-hmm. So in my career world, I have to be, you know, doing this sort of thing, but the wonderful thing about my creativity is that because I'm a creative person, I bring that into the workplace in whatever way I can. And so it's essential that it's a part of who I am and everything that I do. And I feel like it's essential for somebody who is a creative person or wants to be a creative person or wants to tap into that creativity and let it flow is just to do it, to follow it, follow inspiration. And um, for instance, with my painting, one of the wonderful things I have is a garage that's mm. not really fancy or anything. So I set up my garage is essentially my studio. So I have my materials down there, my paints and all different tools that I use. And, you know, I will be downstairs working on some sort of project or I'll go out doing the yard mowing. And because I'm an abstract painter, <clears throat> there's things that I'll just start doing. I'll set it up and I'll walk away and take care of something. And I come back and I'm like, all right, let me put the, um, you know, the base coat on this here. And all right, let me throw another coat on this here. And then I'll go and do something else and I'll come back. And so there are days where I actually just finished a piece the other day where um, my wife was having me do a bunch of different chores around the house. And I just got the inspiration. I said, you know, this one board that I had that was ready to go. It's like a two by, I think it's about two by six board. And um, so it's a long piece. And I was wondering for a long time, how am I going to paint this? Because I've had it sitting downstairs mm. for, gosh, eight months, almost a year now. And um, why? What was special about the piece? That, I mean, that seems like a pretty generic piece of wood. Was there something special about it that made you want to hold on to it that long? Well, I was working on a bunch of other pieces as well. I had a whole bunch of <laughs> okay. different sizes. And okay. this one in particular just kept leaning there against the wall. And I kept thinking, how? Am I, what am I going to do with this piece? What is the inspiration? And I was just having all different types of ideas. And then... I had a project my wife and I were working on something around the house, just general stuff. And I was able to just take some regular paint and just like, you know, 
put down the base coat and I was able to put down another base coat with a different, you know, lighter color. Cause I like to have different textures and things. And so I'm throwing all that down and letting it dry and come back and then, Oh, I have some more paint. Let me do this, blah, 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 and not waste the paint. So what happened was I was cleaning brushes and things like that. And I was, I would clean mm. it on the board and mm. create the base. So now I have a nice textured base and it's got a little bit of different tones because it's different levels of whites and very light grays. And so I was able to have this, final, you know, substrate to look at and be like, all right, now what do I do with it? And then I was doing another project and finally I was like, aha, this is what I'm going to do. And I was inspired by another piece. And I started doing this abstract piece that I was like, oh, wow, this is going to work like this. And it was just a matter of just following the inspiration and letting it come to you. Just like with writing, there's times where you're writing a story and you could sit there, I could sit for hours just typing away and then I won't pick it up for a month, two months, or even a year. You know, it's just, it has to, it's, it's organic in that way. And so I, I'm probably one of the, I would say, least structured in mm -hmm. the way of how I do things creatively, because I feel like it's got to be organic. I don't like the idea of forcing my art. I don't like the idea of forcing and having to do something. Now, there are people who are good at that, like commercial yeah. artists who are able to, you know, I'm just going to churn out 20 pieces that are all the same in style and format. And they're able to create like this, you know, cost, you know, consistent piece and whatnot, but that's not who I am. I have to be organic, just like my photography. I'll bring my camera with me wherever we go. You saw me at the Savage Wonder Festival. I have my camera with me and it's like, uh, is there something I can capture? You know, mm -hmm. and I just let the mm -hmm. moment, the lights, where I'm at, the feeling, try and capture it. And so everywhere we go, I have my camera, and there's this focus for me to be able to say, huh, what's going on here? Is there something I can capture? Is there a moment yeah. here? Let me yeah. ask about the writing. Um, so obviously there's, um, I don't even know if it's a school of thought. I think it's, in many cases, it's just accepted practice that you just put in the reps, that even if it's five minutes a day, do you keep the muscle sharp by writing it every day, by writing something every day, even if it's not the exact project that you want to be working on, it's just getting the reps in. Um, to hone the voice and, and all that. Do you find that works for you? Or is that still something that you're like, no, I got to feel it in the moment. And when the inspiration strikes, I'll be ready to capitalize on it. Yes and no. Um, I can totally appreciate that. However, one of the things that I'm blessed with is that in my actual job, like I said, I blend my creativity in that. Uh -huh. So <clears throat> granted, I may not be working on my creative writing that I want to publish or produce as a screenplay. I'm working on crafting my grammar and my language with emails that I have to write on a regular basis with review write-ups that I have to do for my, um, the job that I'm working on. And what is it? Can we, can we ask what, what is the job? I'm a supervisor for a uh, loan specialist, a team of loan specialists. Okay. So I have a finance background and mm -hmm. it's like I have my left brain, right brain. Yeah. So my, um, career is working in finance and um, the role I'm in right now is a supervisory loan specialist. So I have a team of about 22 people on a national level that I have to be able to work with. And we're reviewing loans that need to be forgiven. And in order to be forgiven, you have to be able to identify if everything is in place and everything is worked out according to the you know parameters set forth by the actual loan in order to be forgiven. And as part of that, we have to do a review write-up. And there's constant communication back and forth between us and the lenders or our counterparts at different departments 
and then with my team, and then there's the narratives that have to be written and they have to be written in such a format that has to adhere to mm. what we call the administrative record because there's a legal process to it. And so there's a way that we have to be able to craft our language to be able to fit into all these different nuances. And um, that is a way that I'm able to be creative with my writing. And actually I help people understand how to do their writing and making sure that they're writing in a proper format. And so, you know, granted it's not writing a novel, but it sure. is helping in that capacity. Does that job help you with character when Big it comes time. to writing story? Yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, bet I actually I pull with my characters for writing. I pull from life all the time. I have some really crazy character scenarios and stories that I'm working on. And that's the challenge is I have like um, creative ADD, you know, mm-hmm. you get inspired yeah. by one thing and then you gotta go write down another thing. And um. I have over a dozen books that I'm currently working on, you know? Jesus. Yeah. So, but I'm not you, writing them all. But the you haven't time. finished it. You have, have you finished any yet? The books? No. Uh, the okay. screenplays, I have a couple screenplays finished. Okay. Gotcha. And that, that, that goes to my creative ADD, right? Yeah. I have finished yeah. pieces of art, finished pieces of photography, finished um, screenplays. And it's a matter of what I want to do with the books and such. And I have a couple of books that are not novel related. They're more information based. So I just, Whatever hits me, whatever inspires me. When you work on your art, it, what's the flash to bang? How quickly can you do you turn out a completed piece? Is it something like with your two by six? It just it it takes a while because you're just trying to figure out where to slot it, or is it the kind of thing where you're like, no, I, I really want to. If I'm going to be in the garage working, I want to crank it out and get it done. Well, okay, so there is one time where my wife Ava she went away to visit her mom and took care of some stuff upstate and so i was home for like you know two or three days i turned out like 30 paintings holy crap (laughs) they're all abstract you know i was just banging them out and then there's times where i have a piece downstairs i'm working on and that was where i was able to take and so one of the things i'd like to do just creatively is when i'm painting in particular i don't like wasting paint um and so i will sometimes have two or three pieces that are being done at the same time. I wouldn't call them, you know, diptychs or triptychs or anything like that, but they, um, if I'm working on one main piece, which I'm working on one right now, and it requires a lot of different colors. And so as I'm having to, you know, work with each one of those different colors and because of the way I'm doing it, I want them to have time to dry before I go on to the next one, because they're, it's based off of shapes and um, mm. a different tool that I have. And so I will use, the leftover paint on my tool and put it on another piece to create a different, completely different, you know, piece off to the side. So I'm not wasting that paint and I'm using it for something completely different. But then on the same token, I'm also taking my paintbrush and then creating the piece I told you about the two by six piece or whatever that size was. And then I'm taking the brush and I'm not wasting that paint and adding it to that other piece so really three pieces going at once. And that one piece with the paintbrushes, the two by six was able to be done in, you know, an afternoon really. And the other one, and that also needed to be able to have some time to dry between, cause I didn't want too much smudging between the strokes that I was doing. And the other piece, the main piece that I'm actually working on, I've been actually working on it for several weeks because I'm doing it as I go, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Mm-hmm. You got, so it varies. What do you get from painting? What's the emotional response? What's your satisfaction? What, what itch does it scratch for you that say writing doesn't, acting doesn't, photography doesn't? 
It's a good question. It's visceral. It's mm. physical. It is um, experimental. It's like a little surprise. Mm. You know, there's things like that that I love about it. And it's a, and I, w- one thing I like is when I'm able to surprise myself, you know, mm. and not mm-hmm. sure what's going to happen because it's one thing to be a painter who is focused on realism, you know, and they're able to do a landscape. And I, and I totally appreciate that. I have no patience for that. And also because I am a veteran with a service connected injury, the injury is in my left shoulder and I'm left-handed. And because the injuries in my left shoulder, it creates an impingement in my shoulder and also in my left elbow and my wrist because of the nerves, I have a neuropathy. And so having paintbrushes on my hands, they're almost always have some sort of pins and needles. Mm. And so the idea of having the patience to sit there and do the detailed work that fine artists do is something that is not comfortable for me. I mean, it actually physically hurts. So I have created unique little tools or found little things that actually help me in a way that are easy to use um, and creates uniqueness in what I do. And so um, when I'm painting, there's that visceral response and it's a connectivity that you cannot get with photography. It's wonderful to be able to go out and capture this amazing scene or Mm -hmm. amazing moment. And I love photographing people that don't know I'm photographing them. You know, that is, I love that sort of thing. Like I seen this homeless guy on the street and there's just like this emotional realism that he's conveying. And it's just, and I capture this moment in this person's life. And it's just, it's a beautiful yet sad portrayal of this person in the human circumstances that we face. And, but in that, I love it. But when I'm painting, there's the surprise element. And so for me, especially through COVID, it's been something of a more of a therapy as well, like to deal with an escape in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can see because it's in a confined space, you're away from people, but yet it's still the world's your vista. You can do whatever you want on whatever the material is, right? Is it all on boards or do you do canvas as well? I have a couple canvas pieces and, but I would say the vast majority is either panels, wood panels, Mm. but but mostly all um, paper, 18 by 24. Um, There's reasons for that. There's a cost factor and also a storage factor. And so when it comes down to it, it's a matter of, I have several, I have close to like 200 pieces downstairs, Wow! but you wouldn't know it just looking at it. They store very easily. Well, yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. but then you can frame them nicely. You can, you know, mount them on like a, another wood panel or something that effect and, or floating frame kind of scenario. And it's all a matter of the presentation. And, but the wood panels are generally something that they've either been from some sort of remnant, you know, that I converted. In fact, I had a couple of, um, I took apart a garage door in our basement or well, our mm. garage. And it was an old wood panel garage door. Mm, And so I took the panels and I converted those into paints, paintings. And it was just a fun experiment, you know, and it's reclaimed art, you know. And what's kind of cool about it is that the way that the actual door came apart, it actually has the, so you have the panel and then you have the construction around the panel. Well, that construction around the panel actually becomes like a frame. 
So I have these couple of pieces cool. where there's where they're a, a vertical piece and they're sticking out of this like frame type thing that could be the base for mounting it. So then it's kind of like floating on the wall. That's cool. So you know it's just yeah. For me, it's it's a it's a discovery process, you know. Yeah. Does I guess at this point, um, how does it feel when you're then shifting mediums? Um, so I guess that gear shift of going, okay, I'm doing something visceral. Now I'm walking around with a camera around my neck and taking candids or whatever it is you're shooting. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just interested in that gear shift of going and then sitting down at a computer and writing, which is really an exercise in isolation. I, that just seems, um, it seems like that'd be a hard gear shift. Do you, and I know you say it all is from the gut and you feel it when you need to feel it and you're driven to do it as you're driven to do it. Right. But man, that, that seems like, a. I guess, let me ask it maybe the best way to ask it like this. Do you ever feel like you're orphaning one of them? Like you come back and you're like, oh God, I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've yeah. worked on this book. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. The writing in particular is the one that's taken the biggest backseat. Mm. Um, and I think the largest reason for that is because it's, it's more of an immediate result to do photography. Yeah. Photography is a lot easier to be able to have that immediate result, the endorphin, you know, the dopamine, whatever it is to have that, oh my gosh, moment of, wow, look at this. It's beautiful. And I can throw it on the internet and try and sell it, <laughs> put it on stock photography or whatever, and get some, you know, hits and, you know, purchases of it. Yeah. That is partly why I think photography can be the most um, uh, forward, you know, in my creative process, um, you know, for instance, but just last week I had a, um, birthday that it was an 80th birthday and a surprise wedding mm. renewal that I was asked by a couple people from church to do. And I photographed their whole event. And what's great about that is again, it's getting in there and trying to find those moments, you know? So it's, it's not just, okay, photo, click, click. Okay, great. Click. Right. Right. It's about trying to find the lighting, trying to find the moment, trying to find the memory that's going to be captured in this moment. So there's that whole exploration aspect of it. And so to me that I can get a great kick out of doing that where, and it's exhausting because I put my mm. full body into it. It's a physical, mm. emotional effort of just being there, being present, being engaged and trying to bring life to the moment that will be a memory for years to come. And, you know, to me, I mean, there's such a rewarding aspect to that. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not necessarily art per se, but it's art in the sense of the expression of what it is that it means for capturing that moment for these people. Sure. Am I going to turn around and take those photos and try and sell them in, you know, in an art gallery? No, of course not. I mean, maybe one or two could be turned into a nice black and white. And, you know, capturing a really amazing moment. But in reality, it's about capturing something for the people that they will then be able to use for years to come as memories, you know? So that's the and, artistic part of it. And that's certainly a skill set that translates when you're on your own taking photographs that you do want to sell as art. Right. 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 I mean, it's not like it's a, a lost moment where you're just, yeah. I mean, there, it doesn't seem like there's any purely commercial moment in photography because all of it, you know, is a hair away from being tweaked into something that could be in a gallery if it's in the right setting. Right. To a certain extent, of course. I mean, there is a whole commercial industry to it, and there's an art to that. Sure. Um, you know, but 
there's, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I are driving along and, um, you know, cause we live near New York city and pre COVID there was more times that we were in the city than we could count. And I would have my camera with me and all of a sudden be like stopping the car, getting out oh, and yeah. then taking an amazing photo. Or I would have her drive and I would be, you know, stop the car, stop the car. <laughs> um, David Letterman's uh, last show. I was driving through New York city and it was his very last show. And you could find this photo on my um, collection online. There's a, uh, moment i was driving and they were they had it was the very first day where they were starting to tear down the stage wow and so it his last show was the night before and so i was driving and it was so it was essentially the last bow and i said I, we got to drive by the, the you know, late show stages and i jumped out of the car and i ran through times square because i didn't want her to have to worry about where she was because there's no parking and whatnot so i sure. ran across yeah. times square over to where i'm at and i get down on a knee and I capture this moment and it's like perfectly timed with this taxi cab just pulling away from oh, the wow. curb. And it's like iconic New York city, yellow cab, the David letter marquee, the building and New York city streets and all the color and stuff that's captured in it. And um, what's great is then you go around the corner and there's a massive dumpster. Sure. sure. And they're just tossing it. Just so, you know, I mean, those things to me, it's like, there's yeah. just that, uniqueness and then there's times where i'm driving and one of my favorite photos is the george washington bridge mm. and i just have it on my camera yeah and i think it might have been the same day and my wife again she's driving and i literally jumped out the um the sunroof so you've got to be the biggest pain in the ass to drive with she must be just there's furious all I'm, the time there's times that i probably am <laughs> not the safest because there's times i'm driving with the camera in my hand Oh really? Oh, yeah. Oh man. Oh, yeah. that's crazy. I I she I dropped her off one time, and I had the camera, and I'm driving through Midtown, past Radio City, past St. Patrick's, and at the stoplight, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, boom, 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 <laughs> clicking a couple shots, and it's like, wow, that actually came out really great. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm looking at one right now, the Chrysler Building, same thing. Stoplight, I'm like, oh snap, taking that oh, shot. Oh my god. You know, oh, that's so, crazy. So, but then why did you pick the particular hell of writing when you've got these visceral, um, instant, more instant gratification pursuits and to then go, okay, yeah, I want to sit down and I want to craft something that is going to take years to manifest and to get the voice and to get the characters fleshed out and all that. Why, why go down that path? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things about writing that you don't get, you know, it's like journaling. You're able to convey something in such a intimate way. You know, it depends on what it is yeah. that you're writing, of course, but ultimately it's an intimate expression with thought to pen or, you know, typewriter mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you're able to bring to life something so unique in a different, completely way. It's, it's got to be completely internalized for the person who's reading it, you know? So when you're reading something, the irony is that I love to read, but I, I hate reading at the same time mm -hmm. because I prefer writing. Um, but the, the whole aspect of reading something and going down a story, story is one of the most amazing things. And every one of us has a story. Every one of us has lived so many different stories in our own lives in so many different ways. And to me, I feel like story defines humanity, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. just like when creating a photograph, there's a story, you know, the sure. saying that yep. a thousand, 
every thousand words for every, whatever it is a photo's worth a thousand words. Yeah, right. And that's true. And it's like, what are you trying to tell a story with in this regard? And for me, it's fun when you're able to have a character that kind of like evolves, you know, because I have a background acting, you know, I went to school for acting. I studied acting in Boston. I studied acting in L.A. I studied acting in Nashville. I you know, went to school in New York. And the whole character dynamic that comes to life in that, you know, it's and you know, really, I love one of the things I absolutely love is you ever go to like a Barnes and Nobles, which is so hard to find anymore these yeah, days. Right, and I used right. to love going into Barnes and Noble in New York City. There was one in particular I really appreciated down um, 14th Street. Yeah, I think it was it the 14th Street one. It might have been. No, it was, it was down further. It was down in okay. um, and by NYU. It was an oh, older. Okay. And so I would go in there and there were books. And you, oh, you ever just open a book and smell? Yeah. You ever yeah. just smell yeah. the inside yeah. of a book? Yeah. And book, just, book, books, it's so easy to get for me to get lost in a bookstore. You put me in a bookstore, I'm not going to be out for hours. Yeah. yeah. The smell of a book, the smell yeah. of that whole, yeah. you know, it's just something that, it, to me, it's magical. It's like, you know, when you smell it, it's almost as if you're eating spiritual food. Right? <laughs> Is there, um, well, I guess let, let's, let's do this. I mean, talking about story, let's get yours out. A little bit more because all of this we've been talking about the artistic path you're raised in an artistic household you end up doing multiple artistic pursuits all at the same time which i'm still trying to wrap my head around but where's the air force fit in why the air force how do you get into the military all right well that's a good question it's actually kind of more a little bit of another funny story my dad was in the air force my uncle on my mom's side was in the air force my grandfather on my mom's side was also in the air force Okay. So we have a military family um, and my grand, my great grandfather on my mom's side, he actually was in world war one. Wow. And sadly I've learned this only recently that he actually um, committed suicide because of PTSD. Well, obviously back then it was just called shell shock or whatever yeah, it was. Right. And um, he became, he came home as became an alcoholic and he couldn't handle it. And he actually ended up killing himself in Lowell, Massachusetts, jumped off of the, uh, if you ever been to Lowell, Mass, there's like a whole yeah, yeah. area there. And he jumped into the ravine and uh, my Nana, um, she was, I think, 20 something before she got married or it was right after she got married. Her mother was getting her hair done in the same area that he did this. And so when she came out, there was all this commotion. Oh, wow. And they were raising the body up from it. And they were watching this. So it's like, you know, for me, the military is an important part of our culture as Americans. And when as a child, I was faced with how am I going to create a life for myself? And my dad instilled in me the need to have to have a quality income and a good work ethic. And I was one of my first jobs was his helper. So I got exposed to a lot of that work ethic aspect and because we were not, we were very blue collar in that sense as well, because again, it was about having to have a job, less about the creativity, even though we were creative, we had to have food on the table. And so my dad instilled me the need to have a good work ethic. And at 18, my mom, she says, Keith, you know, you're 18, you're living at home. What are you doing? You're either going to have to get a full-time job and move out, or you're going to have to go to college, or you're going to have to join the military. She gave me where, the where were you guys, by the way? You were raised in Massachusetts? No, I grew up in Nashville, New Hampshire, right on the Massachusetts oh, yeah. border. Sure. 
Sure. So uh, my parents, they grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, and they moved to Nashua when I was right at, right before I was born. Okay. And uh, be, I was also, I'm also the middle child. So that plays a lot into the whole needing attention aspect, which is the creative piece. Gotcha. You know, so as gotcha. the creative child, it's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> I mean, my dad had a video camera. And when he got a video camera, I was like, I'm in front of the camera. Here I am, <laughs> in front of the camera. Hey, look at me. I'm over here. <laughs> And so, my, yeah. my wife's a middle child. So I, I get a lot of middle child. Uh, yeah. The middle child dynamic is a hell of a thing. Yeah. So uh, my, my dad was in the air force and um, you know, I, I appreciated that. I didn't really know too much about what it meant as a kid growing up after serving. I do, but when faced with the, you know, ultimatum my mom gave me, sure. I said, okay, well, I can't really afford college. Um, college does not seem to be an option at this point because growing up where I was, and at that time, there weren't as many programs like there are nowadays. Like in New York, there's ways you can go to school yeah. basically for free in a lot of ways. Um, so it was not even an option. And I remember even talking to my high school guidance counselor, the things that I was curious about doing, he's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You don't have the grades for that. And he was very discouraging. And I was like, oh, this is really heartbreaking. I don't know what, what was do. it? What, what were you thinking of doing? What, what, I mean, I mean, I thought about being a lawyer. I thought, because okay. I loved, I loved debate. I mm. was on the debate team. I, I loved all sorts of things. There was a variety. That's one of the things about me as an actor that I love is that you can yeah. embody all these different yeah. types of careers and I can be an FBI agent. I can be, yeah. a lawyer. I can be, you know, a homeless person whatever the character calls for, you can be that you can be a mass murderer in a movie, you know, there's right, right. all these, you could be a cop. It doesn't matter. It's all these unique character types that you can bring into you and you can actually say, Hey, I was that, you know, yeah, without the consequences, um, which is the best yes, part. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but so I just basically gave up on the option of school because I said, you know, yeah. I don't have the money for it and um, I just need to get a job. So I worked for my dad for about a year. He had a business working in construction. Um, if you ever went to Home Depot and you saw all those giant green, orange racks, his job was basically building those things or removing mm. them and adjusting them. And so, gotcha. you know, believe it or not, there is some creativity in that. You got to be sure. able to think through all this type of stuff, what you're doing. And um, he was great at it. And we had a, you know, I had a great time working for him. But again, it was like, what am I going to do? So I started going to the recruiters. And I remember I walked into the Air Force recruiter's office and he had his feet up on the desk. And, he's, and I walk in, he's like, can I help you? He was like, totally put off. Like, what do you want? And I'm like, uh, talk about the air force maybe. <laughs> and like, why? Um, I don't know. My dad was in the military. He was in the air force and he's, and so I sat down talking to me. He could care less. And I learned that, you know, the recruiters had a quota and they also had a certain style about trying to draw people in and not to see what kind of level of interest they had. And, whether they had a right fit for the uh, military. So it was maybe part of his recruiting style to try and weed people out. You know, I don't know, but <laughs> I was totally turned off by the air force recruiter. And so I went to the Navy recruiter cause I felt, well, that was the next safest scenario. Um, cause I don't want to go to war. I don't want to go to, you know, put my life on the line to. When, when was this by the way? I mean, that's kind of an important. Well, I graduated high school in 94. Okay. So the following years when I started doing the research. Gotcha. Yep. Um, so I went to the Navy and the Navy was, had me hook, line and sinker. Really? And they had, yeah. I was, I was totally hooked on the whole idea about the Navy because I got to see the world. I was considering going and trying out for the Navy SEALs. Uh, 
kid I knew from high school, he actually made it into the SEALs from the class before me. And so that was, you know, his, you know, tool to try and lure me into this whole thing. Sure. And he says, yeah, we're going to send you to MAPS, Military Entrance Processing Station. And um, we're just going to have you go to MAPS and see if you're qualified. And what I didn't know was that he had misled me to think that I was just going to see if I was qualified, but rather he was getting me to go sign up. It was like he was trying to trick me and just sign up. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Check it out. And, yeah. And so I felt manipulated. I was like, that's not cool. So I kind of backed away from the Navy because he upset me with that. And I, you know, down the hall was the Army. And I, the Marines was the last option for me because anything you think of as a kid growing up as the Marines, they're the ones who just basically die on the front lines left and right, which sadly is in part true. But so I went to the army and when you go into the military, you do the ASVAB test, the armed service vocational aptitude battery test. They looked at my ASVAB scores like, Holy crap, we got to get this guy. I mean, they were just like eating me. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we have all these sign on bonuses. I mean, they were like wanting to throw money at me. It was like a whole group of them. They were just, yeah, yeah. Join. And they're, desperation to have me join and then telling me what my options career-wise were. I was like, yeah, no, I don't know. And I went and talked to the Marines. So I went to the Marines guy and turns out, I learned this afterwards, they actually had an award-winning marketing strategy at the time. They were recognized as having an amazing marketing and sales strategy that was replicated by corporations. And he had me sold. I was ready yeah, I was all in. And my dad, after seeing how dedicated I was to the Marines and what I wanted to do, he says, do me a favor. I don't want you to go in the Marines. He says, but if you choose to go in the Marines, I'm 100% behind you because I will support you in your choice. But do me a favor. Don't talk to the recruiter for two weeks and go talk to the Air Force recruiter one more time because I told him all this. Yeah. And he has me go talk to the Air Force recruiter one more time. And the guy is, I think, either, I think it might have been a different recruiter. Because this is like over the course of like a two-month period, this whole back and forth. Yeah. And um, they may have changed. That could have been why the previous recruiter was a little bit more blase. Right. Because it was end of his term, whatever. And I sat and I talked to him. And he started actually telling me about the Air Force and what actual benefits there were and how it works and all this other stuff. And I actually learn something about, wow, this is actually really great. I like this. This is cool. Um, so I ended up going to the air force. Um, and, and what, what was it that convinced you? Was it, was it the benefits? Was it the job opportunities? What, what was it that actually, do you remember what it was that kind of got you on board? Well, I wanted the air force from the beginning, but okay. it was the guy's attitude that turned me off. Okay. Right. So when I got a different attitude that actually explained to me the benefits of the air force overall yeah. and yeah, what the dynamics were. And I mean, there was something about the fact that they, at the time, I don't know if it is the same now, but from the internal college that they have, the, um, community college of the air force. Yeah. yeah the CCAF, yeah. the community college of the air force is actually a legitimate college. Like they actually have credit right. that to me said something, mm-hmm. the technology piece really said something to me because of my ASVAB course, he looked at him and he's like, look, you have so many great, great skill sets. There's so much you can do with this. And there's a lot the Air Force has to offer, especially from a technology standpoint. And I was fascinated with that because for me, I, one of my favorite things to do is to take things apart and fix them. I love Mm. puzzles. I love having to solve problems. Again, that goes into creativity too. So I use my creative brain to solve problems. 
And that's one of the things I love about my current job is because I'm solving problems all day. But in the Air Force, I was given the opportunity to be an avionics technician on the F-16. I mean, that's pretty awesome. You know, you're a 19 year old kid fixing the F-16 and this is wow. How, how cool is that? Everything in the the cockpit that the pilot touched to fly the aircraft or to communicate in the weapon systems and all that stuff and the navigation, I had to know how to basically troubleshoot those things, fix them in a combat like scenario. You know I mean? That that's so cool. You know, where did you go? Where was your first duty station? Well, I was, um, I only had one duty station because I requested to stay. Um, I was in, well, San Antonio for basic training and then um, right next to it for my first level of tech school. I think it was called Kiesler. And then I went to, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what it was called now. It was somebody, some other base in Texas. But then after my tech school, I was stationed in Cannon Air Force Base, Clovis, New Mexico, for the remainder of my tour. And that was by choice. I fell in love with people in the community. I got involved in the local town mm. and um, very connected to the church there. And so I opted to stay. I started dating a girl from town. So that to me was like, I got to stay, you know? And Yeah. So. And it was the 90s, too. So yeah. there was a little bit more flexibility. There wasn't necessarily, no pun intended, a gun to your head to push out or, or forward deploy because there well, kind of wasn't in, that in that also the base, the base I was at was the one base everyone wanted to get out of. Oh, really? It was considered in some regards, the armpit of the air force. Huh? Um, not necessarily the base, but the location geographically, because it was, unless you were connected to people in town, there was almost nothing to do. Albuquerque, tons of yeah. stuff, you yeah. know, you could do so many things there. And even in White Sands, there was so many other things to do there. Plus, you're on, you know, the stealth right, know, aircraft right, and right. You're, you're near Mexico. So there's a lot of things you could do there. But where we were, you were essentially, the nearest town was 12 miles away. And mm-hmm. it's just like desert and you're driving yep. through cow, you know, cow pastures and stuff. And it's just really but did you cool. like it? Did you Did it appeal to you? Besides the people that you were meeting and the connections that you were developing, did the environment suit you? Did you like being in the Southwest? You know, I mean, not really. Mm -hmm. If I were to be able to go back to the Southwest, it would have to be like Santa Fe. Yeah. Yeah. Geographically where I was at, no, there was really nothing appealing about it whatsoever. It Mm. was just very plain. There was almost nothing. There was no hills. There was tumbleweeds. I never saw a tumbleweed before in my life. (laughs) And, you know, to me, it was just very mundane, nothing exciting. It was the people that made me want to stay there because I was so involved in connection with the community. Gotcha. So when you, when you turned to get out, yeah. Then what was the plan? What was your next step supposed to be? My plan was actually to go back. You see, when I was there, I was involved in that youth group, right? Mm -hmm. That's where I decided to become an actor with the Eastern New Mexico university, which was that 12 miles away from the base. (laughs) Yeah. And so I went, into that acting program, but then that morphed into me being involved in the youth ministry, which allowed me public speaking opportunities, which then allowed me to create a uh, drama team. So I created an entire drama team and on a weekly basis, I had to craft many, you know, skits on a weekly basis that tied into the youth ministry message for the night. And so every Wednesday we had a small mini skit that I put together and, um, that really got me the bug for acting and stuff. And when 
we, I helped develop the youth group from like 30, 40 kids to as many as 500 kids on a weekly basis. Wow. You know, and I'm, you know, getting this exposure on, you know, stage per se and, you know, public speaking. And then I started doing like announcements and doing like a um, offering message. And so I started getting involved in that dynamic of it. So I started falling in love with this whole notion of being in the ministry. And um, so I was actually supposed to come back. I went home for the summer in New Hampshire and I was supposed to come back and do like an internship program with the church. And it actually failed. And in that process, I went to, there's a college in north of Boston. It's a Christian college. And their focus was on, um, one of their things they were known for was they had a good drama media Mm -hmm. program. And I wanted to get into that school. Well, I couldn't get into the school because my application to do so was too late. So on the way home, because I went and met with them and I saw the campus and I thought it was a great opportunity and I went home and on the way home, I learned on the radio, there was a commercial for an acting school in Boston. So I went, I tried out, I got accepted. I started going to it and I fell in love with it. And then because of that, I went to Los Angeles for a uh, convention an acting convention. You get exposed to agents and stuff and you get exposed to casting directors. And that led to, um, getting into the school in New York. Okay. And so then I moved to New York city, started wow. studying school and, you know, and that was really the start of all the creative creativity. And that's where I met my wife as a, uh, at an audition. Really? Yeah. What school were you at in New York? What school brought I you was, back to New York? It was called the school for, uh, the, uh, the school for film and television. Okay. And now it's the, um, conservatory for dramatic arts. Okay the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts. And so and was that, a, um, it sounds like that was like a two, three year process to go through. Yeah, it was that. a two year conservatory and it was accredited school and it was focused strictly on acting for film and TV. Gotcha. Wow. And so by the time that wraps, then are you pretty much a committed New Yorker from that point on? Um, committed in the sense of Yes and no. I mean, I, I, I love where we live. I love the geography of it. There's things about the culture that I don't love, but mm-hmm. if I were to, if we moved away from here. I can't tell many times it kept coming back. Mm. Um, so, and was it the work that keeps bringing you back or what, what is it that keeps there's a sense, you There back? is a sense of home to the Northeast. Mm. You know, okay. I grew up in New Hampshire outside of Boston. And um, for me, the Northeast is home. Yeah. The East Coast. When we lived in LA, we felt like we were in another world. Yeah. You're always behind the times on things. And <laughs> everybody you run into is an aspiring actor. Right. And there's such a phoniness that we experienced where they're constantly looking for the more important person in the room. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that to me didn't sit well. So, how long were you in LA for? How long did you guys live? There? About a year. Okay. And it's not that we didn't give it a shot. It just, it just did not. We didn't. Yeah. 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 No, no, I know. LA, LA, I think I lived in LA for about eight years and I don't think I had a good conversation for eight years. <laughs> I think it was, it was just a, I, there were a lot of things I loved about it, but, but uh, yeah, it was definitely a different dynamic, especially for someone from the Northeast. I agree. Yeah. Like it's, it's a different, um, yeah, just wildly different dynamic. So being that it's kind of funny. So your, your kind of path through the military very much led to furthering your art 
and furthering your creative choices going forward. At what point did you have to decide, um, my God, how to live, uh, you know, how to balance the work and the art. Um, how did that decision-making happen for you? And, you know, like, I, I know that's, you know, the $64,000 question when it comes to a life in the arts. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating because we, when my wife and I met, we met at an audition. She and I were in New York. She lived outside the area, right down where we live now, North of the city. And uh, she had a family business and she's a singer. And so her whole thing was to expand into acting. And she was going these auditions. And I put myself out on the first audition that I ever went to while I was in acting school. And I showed up and it was outside of NYU and it wasn't an NYU project. It was just being held there. And Mm -hmm. so somebody was producing a independent film and I had to shift around my day and stuff to get to the audition and had to actually pay somebody to take my shift. I was a bellman at a hotel in Times Square. So I gave him 50 bucks to take my shift. And um, so I went to the audition and there's a group of people standing outside and there's a sign-up sheet and I see this girl and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> she's pretty hot. <laughs> and um, so I stuck around and um, we kept trying to, you know, make eye contact and small talk. And then, you know, one thing led to another, we started talking and we've been together ever since. The irony is neither of us actually got to audition for the project because they cut it off because it was an open call. <laughs> so there was too many people. So we never even actually auditioned for the project, but we stayed together and, um, you know, we've been pursuing and supporting each other in our creativity all this time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's helpful is that we have each other to lean on yeah. and to, it's, it's not like she's a lawyer pursuing a legal career yeah. and I'm an actor, she's a singer and actor, and she's also creative with writing and stuff and has her own other creativity things that she does like crafting and DIY projects. So we both embrace that. She supports me. I support her. And so then moving forward, um, we're building towards our careers. We're moving out to LA. We're doing our thing in LA. We moved to Nashville. We did this thing in Nashville for a while. We were getting some success in Nashville, booking some commercials and mm-hmm. getting some singing gigs and stuff like that. And then we moved, moved to Florida for a little bit. And then we moved back to New York each time. And so it was all different things happening and projects working on. And then I started getting my uh, degree in my bachelor's in business for entertainment because I want to understand the business and get into wow. the creative side of things. So I got my bachelor's in business with a focus in entertainment. And then I was able to get my master's in business for entertainment. Wow. Uh, and so now I have that. And then we put together a small business um, that we've now since closed because of COVID. But um, the entire focus was on eventually production, you know, event production and film production and stuff like that. And then some creative consulting resources for other people like web design and, you know, marketing and things like that. So I was trying to be able to build this out. And the two of us, you know, we were really pushing towards all these things. And in 2008, I ended up having to have surgery on my shoulder. So in 2008, my shoulder actually um, was, had gotten so bad from when I was in the military, it was misdiagnosed they actually thought it was just a torn rotator cuff and that it would be healed yeah. and no problem. It turns out the actual bone had broken and it healed incorrectly. Wow. So and when, do you remember why do you, was there a specific incident or was it like, yeah, it was, it was due to some, um, like, like, um, what do you call it? Um, sorry. We, we just playing or goofing around, playing around with, you know, yeah. a bunch of guys yeah. and we were playing, you know, football kind of thing. And, 
injured it and didn't think much of it other than that hurt like hell. Um, and it, I figured it would just get better. And one of the things that if you're in the military and you have something of a severe injury that you get sidelined, you yeah. could actually lose, you'd be forced out medically. So I just basically hid the injury as much as I could and just acted like nothing happened. Um, but then when the doctor, he never even x-rayed me, he's oh, it's just torn a rotator cuff, do some physical therapy. You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Years later, when I got out of the military at the VA, they looked at my shoulder and saw that there's actually a break in your bone. And so I had to have surgery and stuff to fix it. Jeez. Well, that was really when things stopped creative wise. Um, and that's when I was able to get my degree. That's so I timed my degree with getting this. I was able to use the um, benefits associated with me due to my disability and whatnot. I used my GI Bill for the acting school. And um, wow. So my wife and I, we, you know, we were living here and I had to work. And so eventually I, we had to put food on the table because all of that other stuff had to stop Yeah. and I couldn't do some of those things physically because I'm in a sling and yeah. that was almost a year for recovery. Wow. And so it led to me having to actually get an actual job. So I got an actual job. I started my business at the same time and we actually were in the process because my wife is a singer and, um, putting together a multi-city concert series to support veterans. So I was developing this whole entire thing and we were going to get national sponsors and we had this nationally known organization for veterans that we were going to put this together for. And it's going to be 30 cities down the East coast, all free concerts paid for by sponsors. Wow. And um, it was going to be something for me and my wife to do and help get her career going as well. And then as we're doing this, we were in a car accident. Jeez. Somebody, somebody rear-ended us, um, knocked me unconscious. I ended up having a torn, my other shoulder got damaged. And so that stopped us. And then six months, not even six months later, we were in a second car accident. Somebody else rear-ended us. It was both at stoplights and we ended up suffering a traumatic brain injury oh, and, um, both of us did. And so that sidelined everything, all of our creative stuff basically came to a screeching halt had to deal with physical therapy, had to do with recovery, had to deal with lawsuits. And for the next like five years, it was just like a bunch of, you know, headache, literally. And we still have ancillary pain and issues that we deal with on a regular basis now. So it was all a matter of then picking up the pieces and how do we move forward? Yeah, sure. And during that process, because of my degree, I was able to get a career in finance because I figured mm -hmm. what's the thing that I could do physically and not yeah. be, you know, limited. And then also what could I benefit from, from a business perspective as a business owner, you need yeah. to own finances. So why not go into finance? And so I did. And so throughout the last, I don't know, seven years, we've been really just focusing on trying to redevelop all of our creativity and stuff like that. So like all my writing had to be put on hold, all my other creativity. And so I brought the photography back to life and that became something that I was able to do. And then I was able to bring some of my writing back to life. And now it's morphed back into the painting again. And all this time we've been trying to do some acting and stuff, but it's all been limited in scope because of what happened. Do you feel like you're making up for lost time? Is there a in sense of that it, creatively that you're going, Hey, I, I had to take a hiatus off this stuff. So there's just a fire. There's just a lot of pent up creativity that you're just trying to unleash and you're trying to, and you're going, Hey, pictures, art, acting, writing, like you're, you're trying to fire on all cylinders because there was a hiatus. I, you know, I never thought of it, but I think in some regard, yeah, 
you know, and because I'm at the point now, I'm like, you know what, I'm just not going to let it stop me. Yeah. And why, and you know, what really pushed me with the, like the painting in particular was one of my clients was an art gallery in the town Piermont, which is where I was working in the banking. So the client was had opened up a new gallery and I got to know them and I got to experience behind the scenes in their gallery. And I was able to experience a lot of art mm. and understanding of the art and learned and from her business, a lot of business stuff. And, and I started researching a lot more art in a way that I hadn't before. And I started reteaching myself the painting and creativity and experiencing and exploring in new ways that I hadn't before. And, um, it really opened up my eyes to the world that's saying, you know what, if this guy can make a painting <laughs> and charge $10,000 for it, why can't I, Yeah, you know, yeah. granted, okay, he's got, you know, this body of work, blah, 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 whatever. But looking at it, I'm thinking what really got me was I made this really silly piece and it was something that was kind of sarcastic and I took a piece of cardboard and I put something on it and I, then I took a black and I made, took a photo of it and I played with the black and white and I showed it to the art gallery. I said, what do you think about this? He says, Oh, that looks like a mother. Well, and I said, Oh, who's mother. Well, I, was, oh, yeah. I couldn't remember. Cause you know, I hadn't been exposed to the yeah. for so for a couple of years. And so I went and I looked and I was like, yeah, I guess it kind of does look like a mother. Well, and she looks at me, she's like, you made this, didn't you? I said, yeah. And she's like, I actually really like it. And so um, we talked about me and what I wanted to do and start developing my creativity and artwork and stuff. And so she encouraged me with it. And I started showing her my stuff. And it was it was just a process of having somebody there who actually saw the uh, potential. And so that really motivated me. And I just like, can't stop making it. Listen, I know you got to run because you guys, you know, we're on the treadmill and got some gigs coming up. So I don't want to hold you up, but Keith, this has been, um, this has been great. It's been great to hear. And I think, and thanks for being so frank. That's a hell of a journey to go on. And I think a lot of people can relate to it and, and relate to the way that life, you know, sometimes just puts you through the wickets a little bit Yep. and the way that you're manifesting that and, um, and getting after it now is inspiring. And yeah. um, I really appreciate uh, you walking us through that, man. That means yeah, a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's funny. Uh, my wife, she's actually, the reason why I have to jump off is we have a, uh, she was asked to sing the anthem in God Bless America for an event up here in town. And the irony is that she actually got a uh, infection, like some sort of like cold infection. And so because she's a professional singer, you wouldn't even know when she sings that she's actually sick. And um, so she, this is what you got to do. You know, yeah. she's, yeah been you know sick with this nasty cold head cold for the last three days and but she's still going to just fight on and go in there and act like nothing's going on and she's got her injuries and things like that because of the accidents and stuff but you know what you wouldn't know she's a pro you know? it's yeah. like you gotta just you yeah. gotta do it you gotta just fight through it and not let life stop you and that's the biggest challenge for me is i always was the mind says i'm not going to let my circumstances dictate how my life is yeah, and I, I would tell, you know, Ava, I would say, don't ever let, we'd watch HGTV and I'd see these, you know, stick in the mud kind of guys who are, you know, going to buy the house. I'm like, don't ever let me be like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I got to be able to just be me. And so if I'm never famous and successful at what I'm doing, I can at least say I lived. I can see, at least yeah. say I experienced it. I didn't let my circumstances stop me from at least 
enjoying the creative process in some way, shape, or form. It's the uh, well, the end of Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech, right? If he succeeds, he knows the triumph of high achievement. And if he fails, he fails at least while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Yeah. And that's, um, dude, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a path to walk, man. I appreciate it. Hey, tell everybody where they can find your work and find more about what you're doing, what projects you have going on. Sure. Sure. But let me uh, just one thing, cause you just said that about Teddy and it really yeah. success. I think the challenge with success is people put a dollar sign to success, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. like Ava, you know, she'll say things like, you know, it's like, you know, she's you know, preparing her career and things. I'm like, you know what? You are a success. Yeah. You are doing. Yeah. yeah. That's you know? right. It's like you set out a goal and you succeed it. Is there a dollar sign to a goal? No. Sometimes the dollar sign might be a reward to it, but the success is in the fact that I set out to make a painting and I made it. Yeah. That's you know, right. So it's a matter of perspective. So I think from the standpoint of what somebody could take away from this and what I can also take away from this and live by is the idea of what is success actually defined by? Well, it's that's, not defined yeah. by a dollar sign. It's not defined by a title. It's defined in setting out to do something and actually doing it. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And especially in the, I think artistically, it's also about your ability to capture what you wanted to say successfully. Right. And whether or not that finds a, a home, whether or not, and whether that's why you have artists that are recognized as being before their time or ahead of their time is because, you know, you, it, they said it successfully, whether or not people picked up on it then is up to something outside of their control. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that great Jack Lemon story about reading the paper about a guy. The headline is successful businessman kills himself. And so, well, wasn't that successful then, was he? You know, I mean, it, it, there's there's definitely more to it than dollar signs. 100%. Yeah. 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 So that's the that's the way I got to live. That's the way I got to be able to keep moving totally. forward to this. So that's totally. how I overcome this is perspective, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, absolutely. And sorry to go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah so my, um, my website is uh, keithrousseau.com. It's the French Rousseau. So it's R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U. So KeithRousseau.com. And of course, I'm on Facebook and Instagram um, under the same thing. So yeah, that's how you get a hold of me. Dude, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, to be continued. Have a great yeah, gig today. It. And um, yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate it. Looking forward to learning more about the vet rep too. Sure so, thing, man. That. We'll All talk, right. brother. Bye. All right. Well, bye. That was the savage wonder of Keith Rousseau. What a great guy, uh, great conversation. And, um, I can't wait to see where his life and his art takes him and how that continuing story unfolds for him. Okay. Veterans repertory theater. What is going on with us? Well, a lot of stuff's going on with us. The easiest way to find out all of our lines of effort. We talked about Keith having a lot of stuff going on. We have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, It's hard to keep up with it. So uh, the best way to do so is to go onto our website, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, and check out all of our lines of effort on our Now Playing tab. So when you go onto the website, go to vetrep.org, you'll see a tab that says Now Playing. Click on that. It will show you this podcast. It will show you the Savage Wonder Festival. It will show you the parlor on Quaker Avenue where we have our shows every Saturday night, um, or most almost every Saturday night. 
Um, it will show you our right loud events on Instagram live. It will show you what else? Something else. Oh, the literary blog, of course. And maybe in the, well, not dangerously near future, but near future, it will show you uh, plays that we are about to, or in the process of fully mounting uh, for production. So um, all that stuff going on there. Uh, as always, you can check us out on Instagram. Um, we are at Vet Rep Theater on Instagram. On Facebook, we are at Veterans Repertory Theater. I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. I will spell it for you here. It's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater is spelled E-R, not R-E, because we are American. So it's Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook or Vet Rep Theater on Instagram, and that's our two most active social medias. Yes, we are on Twitter. I have not been on Twitter in probably six months. Um, some stuff automatically populates onto Twitter. Some stuff doesn't. So if you're trapped under a heavy object and need help, do not try to contact us on Twitter. Uh, Instagram or Facebook is going to be a more reliable communication method. If you are interested in reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, on a regular basis, can I suggest that you just subscribe to our literary blog? We have a, what's the best word to describe it? Maybe cadre of incredibly talented veteran writers writing um, usually relatively small, relatively short pieces uh, for us uh, day in, day out. And when you subscribe to our literary blog, you will get those delivered directly to your inbox. Best way to subscribe to our literary blog, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Go to our Now Playing tab. Scroll down. You will see our literary blog. Click on the link. It will take you through everything you need to know and see in order to subscribe. Um, but do that. We also, you know, at the bottom of their right, at the end of each email, we'll also put uh, updates on stuff we have going on that we want you guys to know about. But you get a, a good short dose of really strong veteran write, writing, poetry, fiction, some creative nonfiction uh, every day, which is pretty darn cool. In addition, if you are a veteran or if you are the media family member of a veteran, remember, we define veteran as military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, DOD employees, DOD contractors, um, foreign service. If you, you are or were any of those, or if you are or were an immediate family member of someone in any of those, and you write, reach out to us. Send us your stuff. We would love to read it. Um, the best way to do that is, again, go to vetrep.org, go to our submissions tab, click on it, and you will see a whole bunch of boilerplate and legalese, but buried in there is also a description of what to submit to us, how to submit to us, why to submit to us, where your submission goes. Um, if you're writing plays, which obviously we would love, then um, you're probably eligible to be in our competition. So, you know, check it out and uh, send us your stuff. We'd love to see it. Okay. I think that's all the uh, dirty advertising that I have to say for this episode. I don't know why I called it dirty advertising. Probably because it's, 
<laughs> it's late at night and I'm starting to ramble. But um, and it wasn't really advertising and it wasn't really dirty. So it was really neither of those. It was um, I don't know what you call it. It was just uh, self promotion. Eh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Talking shop, letting you guys know what the stuff is that we're doing and how you can contact us. Anyway, I. Uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to say for this episode. Uh, there's tons more stuff. I, I'm, I'm always torn as to if I really should properly take this time and slam you with a bunch of proper ads for things we have going on. Um, and I'm not going to right now, only because I'm not 100% sure when this episode's getting released, and I don't know what exactly I need to be promoting. <laughs> but regardless... Um, you know, check the website, check the Instagram. You'll see all the stuff we have going on that you need to know about. Okay. On that note, my thanks as always to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all. <laughs>